You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. The outsiders ravage our land. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. So you're going tomorrow? Yes, I'm going tomorrow with the advanced team. I'd like you to take me with you. Are you trying to give me court martial? Can I trust you with something? I've been having dreams about a girl fallen in battle. Felt like a vision. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. To the future of House Atreides. You have to be ready. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. They're not human, they're brutal. Well, if I'm not dead, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. Come on! My son. and welcome once again to Geekfest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to be tackling Dune, the latest version uh, that has come out. Dune has been a very, I would say, difficult subject to approach because, like Lord of the Rings, it's a massive, massive old property that people try to do it, and they're very cautious about it because potential disaster could hit if you do it the wrong way. Dune has had a a rough history from the Jodowski pre-production work that never manifested in an actual film. That's a whole other 
thing to look at. There's a documentary about that director trying to make Dune many, many years ago and failing. Then the Lynch version, which to this day still kind of haunts us in its bad and good <laughs> aspects. Then there was the Sci-Fi Channel uh, miniseries, which is a little bit forgettable, but still a much better attempt at trying to give us as much information from the book as possible. And now this latest version that uh, we just watched. So let's try to dig into Dune. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're A number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. Let's talk about Dune. First off, let me just say that this is a subject that I've kind of been avoiding for a very long time. Because up to now, we've only had basically two versions of Dune. The, the, the Lynch film and then the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries, if you will. Of course, you have the literary portion of Dune, which is where everything is based on. However... For me personally, the book has been sitting on my shelf now for, I don't know, 32 years. <laughs> and I still had not touched it until a few days ago. I was aware of Dune for a long time in terms of the film through Starlog magazine. I knew that they were making a Dune film. I knew that David Lynch was directing it. And, you know, as the buzz and the, you know, the following it through a couple of years, you know, finally the film is out. And this film had the pedigree of everything that you would want from science fiction. Obviously, just like any other filmmaker, they're going to treat it as the next Star Wars. It's going to be the next groundbreaking everything. However, when I did get around to see it, which I did see it in the movie theater... And I still remember to this day that you walked in the movie theater and they gave you a glossary of terms. And the film begins with a glossary of terms. And I guess at that point, I should have known that something's up here. This is going to be a little different. And boy, was it. The film was very long, very convoluted, very dark, very disgusting at certain scenes. Uh, I was 14 years old, by the way. The film came out in 1984. And I kind of walked away with, from this film thinking, okay, there's something really special about this film in terms of like the, the scenic design and the costumes and, and just the, 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 the world building. There was a story behind the story that was huge. But it just did not seem to translate too well to film. Uh, so I guess what must have happened is a few years after that is when I bought the book thinking, you know what? 
Because the general consensus was that the film just was a little bit of a disappointment for most viewers. Just your regular viewers, they were completely befuddled by it. And and I guess even hardcore viewers, Dune fans, if you will, were a little bit let down. But it was the kind of film that it just, it kind of like stuck to you. It's like, it's bad, but there's some good things in it that you wish they would have worked on some more or stuff like that. And I remember later on, the Sci-Fi Channel played an extended version of this film that had extra scenes that made things a little more clearer, just a little, not, it didn't just, you know, blow you away. It just, just made things a little more clear. And I guess that's probably what kind of brought me to the, all right, I might as well just buy this book and read it. But just like Lord of the Rings, you know, another classic of literature fantasy uh, that has been sitting on my shelves for years now and i have never gotten to read them any of those i instead stuck with the 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 film or television versions so then i don't know 15 years later 16 years later i forget exactly early 2000s i think it was the sci-fi channel releases a mini series called frank herbert's dune uh, which I, I barely remember seeing it. Obviously, different actors, different different everything. But it was much longer. So they could go a little deeper into the storyline itself. Eventually, they even put out a DVD version that's supposed to be a director's cut of that, which is even longer. But again, it kind of came and went. Uh, I actually own a second TV series, miniseries, called Children of Doom. Again, based on, uh, you know, all the original material for the Sci-Fi Channel. And uh, I don't even remember seeing any of that. I, it, it was such a long time ago. And then for the longest time, you know, Dune was always there bubbling up, coming up for different reasons. And we might have even discussed it a little bit every now and then on our show, depending on the, on the subject matter. But years ago, after Dennis Villeneuve did Blade Runner 2049, news came that he was going to tackle Dune. And so the countdown for Dune began. I had forgotten enough about this movie, or at least this story, to be able to walk into this film, I don't want to say completely blind, but a little uh, forgotten (laughs) in terms of some plot points. Obviously, the main things are still there. You don't get shocked or surprised if you've seen the original film or if you've seen the sci-fi channel version, obviously, but especially the original film, the, the basic story beats are there. The only thing that's different, which is not something that was advertised early, I think, I think, is the fact that this movie only takes about half the story of Dune, of which the Lynch film and the other film went through the entire run. This film, I believe, was also supposed to come out a lot earlier, but just like with everything else, COVID slowed it down, and now it's finally out. Seems to be somewhat of a mild hit, enough for them to greenlight part two. The name of the film is Dune, but when you first start to watch it, the title Dune comes up and it says part one. So I think they, marketing-wise, they wanted to stay away from showing you that this was part one of a story that had not yet been greenlit. God forbid the, the, the film tanks and then there's no part two, you know, then you're stuck with that. This version of the film has a couple of new actors. 
or at least not as known actors, but it also has a pretty big chunk of very well-known actors. For me, primarily Oscar Isaac. He plays Duke Leto. Let's see who else is pretty well-known. Uh, Javier Bardon. He plays the leader of the Fremen. Josh Brolin plays Gurney, who is kind of like the uh, Paul's uh, fighting instructor and you know the guy in charge of uh, the army, if you will. And Jason Moma. Uh, plays Duncan, like a special agent of the Atreides family that that goes in early to start to work with the Fremen. The rest of the actors are a little less known to me, at least. But in a way, it's a good thing, I guess, that they don't go too crazy with super known actors. I mean, I, I always use the example of any movie that would cast Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt as the lead actor you're going to have a very stiff climb in terms of, you know, believability because those are such huge superstars that they're kind of always themselves. They're always playing themselves in a way. The lead here is Timothy Chalamet, who is an up-and-coming young actor. I I don't even think I've seen him on anything, but he seems to be on just about everything. (laughs) Lately, or at least announced that he's going to be in. It's one of those Hollywood things where, you know, in the industry, they know who's about to pop, who's about to explode. And then it's like, who's going to get him first? You know, that kind of an actor. Off the bat, this film, just like the original, when it comes to costume design, set design, special effects, it is just fantastic, the kind of work that they do. There is such a progression of special effects and how everything looks so plausible, so lifelike. I don't know if we ever lived in a time where special effects are so good. Of course not, we haven't. But but by that I mean where the suspension of belief is not as wide as it used to be. So, for example, if you go back to the, I don't know, the 30s or the 40s, when you have... The you know early stop motion animation, a film like King Kong, you know it blew everyone away. It was fantastic. It was earth shattering. You know the special effects, you know they could do it. But even older audiences, even though they're seeing this for the first time, I'd like to believe that they would be saying to themselves, "It's fake. It looks fake, but I'm enjoying it anyway, knowing it's fake." The suspension of belief was overwhelmingly bigger, I guess, the the further back you go. My point is that now, as we get closer and closer to the type of special effects we are seeing now, they are the type of special effects that you have to dig really deep to figure out whether it's real or not. Whether it's a background or a foreground or a creature, obviously creatures are creatures, you know they don't exist, or a ship. Obviously, we're not building spaceships of that magnitude. But certain things are just so good now that they fool you. Not only do they fool you, they surpass any kind of uh, test that you might try to give yourself. Or you're trying to look for mat lines or you're trying to look for, you know, strings, you know, anything like that. Nowadays, you're seeing less of that. So you're spending less time suspending belief and more time getting into the story. Now, I am going to talk a little more about the Lynch film and the sci-fi film later, but I'm going to 
go through it in the manner of which I saw this film. Uh, certain things happen. My initial intent was to just see the film and then just kind of talk about it and talk about the fact that I've never read the book. But then what happened was after I saw the film, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should take a look at some of those other ones just to kind of refresh myself because I'm noticing things here for the first time that I never seem to have noticed before, or maybe I just forgot about them. So then I, you know, I watch, I rewatch the sci-fi channel. I rewatch this insanely long Lynch version. And then I started reading the book. So things are starting to kind of come in at me from different parts, from different angles. And it was kind of like, I better put this down on tape soon because I'm starting to get so mixed up with all these different sources of, variations of this story one of the things that this movie did that cleared up for me initially was also the fact that they're explaining to you how is it that the harkonnens are now in charge have been in charge of arrakis for a long time now and that the way that it works is not that they're having the harkonnen people come and mine the spice they're using local labor they're exploiting local labor one overwhelming thing about this book, when you get above the fray, above everything, is that it's a commentary on business practice and capitalism and exploiting native individuals on foreign lands, on foreign planets for the resources of that planet. It talks about who the bosses are, who are the owners, who are the governments, who are the militaries in charge of making this work. And then they go a step further and they show you who are the people behind those people. You know, the, who really runs things? Do the presidents of countries, of planets, really command? Or are there other forces behind them that are even more powerful than them? And in a very subtle way, this book, I mean, not very subtle way, actually, uh, th this book kind of delves into that. And again, this book was written, good Lord, I think it was either the 50s or the 60s. So this is a, a story that could have taken place. I mean, the type of situations you're dealing with, when you strip away all of the sci-fi away from it, this could be the, you know, the 1800s, the 1700s, the 1200s, you know, whatever. You, you could go back and apply this story because this kind of thing keeps happening over and over again. Another aspect I saw for the first time in this film is this whole thing about the, the bullfighting motif. The fact that Duke Leto's father apparently was a bullfighter. He was, you know, he was he was a leader also, but for whatever reason, he was into bullfighting and he was actually killed by a bull. And that particular bull, apparently, from, from what we see in the movie and later from what I learned, is that the bull's head is mounted as a trophy and the horns of that bull still have the blood of the grandfather on the horns. And you could say... It's a tribute to the grandfather. You could say that. There is a portrait of the grandfather being, you know, shuffled around as they move from from the Caladan to, to Arrakis. But you could also see it as, as you know, more symbolic of the the sins of the grandfather or, or the, the overconfidence of the grandfather kind of being passed down to another generation and history kind of repeating itself in a bad manner between grandfather and father and hopefully not son. During one of the 
lesson plans that Paul is learning, they're able to give us more information on, you know, obviously, exposition. Exp- this this is all about exposition, and the book is a gigantic data dump of information as you're reading the story. But in the film, you know, you can't really go that far. Uh, Lynch went completely bananas in ways of giving you the exposition. But here, one of the things that they mention to you and they explain, again, most people should have gotten this by the original, but it's been such a long time, that interstellar travel is something that it is so important to to just the way of life of this time. You know, you're talking about the year 10,191. I mean, you can't even fathom such a thing. And in a way, you're also forgetting a little bit that this isn't a, a planet or, or, or a galaxy far, far away in terms of nothing to do with... No, this is the children of Earth. This is our world pushed forward but now we're not even on Earth anymore. I don't even know what happens on Earth. Maybe the book will tell me what happens on Earth. But they do give you a lot of exposition about all these other things that led to where we are right now. And as we watch the movie right now, meaning 10,191, you start to see these things that kind of pop there. The bullfights, like bullfighting, that's a very Earth-specific thing. And, and the guy with the bull and the and the little statue of the bullfight, you know, the guy. So it's almost like... Every now and then, they're reminding you that, yeah, this is actually, you know, the, the descendants of Earth. This is this is our future. Things have changed, but things are also kind of the same in terms of where the conflicts lie, where the problems arise. And as they're explaining to you, because obviously, the mystery of the story, in a way, is all about the spice. The spice is this this particular product that only comes in Arrakis. It has to be mined. It has to be extracted. It has something to do with these worms, but we don't know exactly what. There's these crazy, gigantic worms that are out there, you know, eating anything in its path. People have to kind of stay away from them and be able to mine the spice off the sand, which is a very difficult, dangerous work. But... The spice itself seems to have multi-uses. Some of it is almost like a drug. You know, people take it. uh, It gives them insight depending on how you use it. But as far as governments go, the spice is the, the particular product, chemical, whatever you want to call it, that enables interstellar space travel. And that's the key to everything. Being able to be a superpower, a galactic superpower, has to do with being able to show up in places with your armies and navies and uh, air forces or whatever military might you have over very long distances. Just like now, if you had no fuel it would be practically impossible to get your troops from one location to the other. This is now in this year of 10,191, what enables a certain powers to have control over other powers is the mining and the production and the distribution and who gets it and how much does it cost and all that stuff having to do with the spice. One of the new things you get to see in this film, which you saw in the other two, 
And I specifically remember in Dune, Lynch's Dune, the shielding, the personal shield device that the Atreides uh, family uses when they're fighting, you know, when, when, when his forces use, especially when Paul is training, uh, when he was fighting with Patrick Stewart, who at the time was also playing Gunry. That's another fun little thing to see is, is you, you find a character and then you try to associate that character with who played him before. So you jump back to to the Lynch version of that character. Who, which, which famous actor played that character? And then you jump to the, uh, uh, the the Sci-Fi Channel one, which are less famous characters. There's a couple of pretty big, gigantic ones, but uh, mainly they're they're all lesser known actors. But anyway, the the shield effect was a very uh, eye catching kind of thing in the film that they were able to tra- I mean, obviously transfer over from the story from the book. And in in Lynch, I remember they were very boxy, kind of CGI-ish looking creations. I don't know for sure if it was a completely a CGI thing, because again, this is 1984, that means they shot it in 83. I don't know how advanced 83 was. You're talking about, remember, 82 was when the uh, Wrath of Khan did the whole planet Genesis changing graphic uh, so I don't know if they, if for the Lynch version, they actually used a very rudimentary graphic, computerized graphic system, or if they just did traditional animation to make it look like computer graphics, kind of like what Tron did and some other, some other films they did. You could kind of fake the, the computer version by making it animation. But anyway... In the Lynch version, there were these very boxy things, and you could kind of not see too much through them. Here, they're able to simplify them quite a bit to the extent where you see the person fighting, and you do see a slight shimmer around them of where the this shielding mechanism works. And depending on the blow, it changes color. You know, if it's a, a regular blow to them, it's one color. But if it actually starts to penetrate the shield, it starts to change to a different color. So the, I guess so that obviously the viewer can understand that, oh my God, it, this is getting through. So I think they did a pretty good job on that. Another thing that I think differentiates this from the other one, from the Lynch version, is that the Baron Harkonnen, now again... <laughs> The Baron Harkonnen is one of the most boisterous, flamboyant, over-the-top characters that you're going to have in this film because his his he is oozing evil. Evil is just oozing with him. And the the Lynch version had the the first version of him, which was again a very loud, very disgusting, and and all kinds of weirdly sexual. Uh, perverted, uh, you name it. They they wrapped it all into this one character, this one actor, and he did a, a very good job. The Sci-Fi Channel one had another actor, not as disgusting, but he had a lot of that going on too. The sexual perversion was a little bit there. The, the violence was there, but not the grotesque features. That's, that's more of a Lynch specialty. Lynch... Lynch is, uh, you know, he he Lynch likes a little bit of body horror, which is a specific kind of horror, things that are just gross. He he kind of likes to kind of throw that in every now and then. They didn't do that much of that in the Sci-Fi Channel. Here, I found him much different. To me, the first thing that came to mind very early on his appearances 
And by the way, he's played by Stellan Skarsgård, a pretty well-known actor. A little hard to recognize here because he has so much prosthetics. He's, he's huge. He's gigantic. Here, what I found was that he was very reminiscent to me of Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. There's a he's always sitting there and he's he's kind of like in a steam bath kind of thing and he's practically he's practically naked, I think. And and you see these glowing things on his back which I guess is the device that helps him to kind of float around and fly. But at one point he kind of turns around and he starts kind of like pushing the sweat off his face with his hands just wiping himself and it 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 so reminded me of Kurtz of of that kind of character, evil character, a guy that is just consumed in his own thoughts, not as flamboyant and out of control as the two previous versions that were out there. Again, we only seen half of him so far. We'll see where he goes with this. Let's see if he goes the disgusting, depraved version that we were used to, or maybe they're scaling back a little bit. One of the things that I've read was that when you try to, you know, when you when you're comparing differences, was that a trope of the past for films or stories was that any form of homosexual tendencies or hints were reserved for the bad guy. So if you want to make the bad guy more of a bad guy, you give him that little extra, oh, look, and he likes men, or he likes very young men, that kind of thing. And that is something that they did throw around in the film and in the miniseries. Here, they haven't really touched upon that, at least so far in part one. I'm also told from what I've read, again, that that was something also in the literary version, which I haven't really gotten too much yet, I think. Uh, which was, again, it was part of the time, and it was part of Frank Herbert's particular point of view, if you will, of portraying a character that way. You know, if you want to make him more evil than evil, make him homosexual or something like that. Or or, or basically, or, or the, the easier trope, and that is associate homosexuality with perversity. Put those things together and just kind of make a cocktail out of that and, and throw it out to your to your reader or your audience. I think they're kind of trying to stay away from that, which I guess that's kind of a good way of interpret a different way of interpreting it. I mean, you cannot have everything exactly the same. And as a filmmaker, just like the other two filmmakers, you can't say that Lynch adapted the book 100% exactly the way it was supposed to be adapted. No, no, absolutely no way. Lynch only had a few hours to tell a story that potentially could take days to tell. And on top of that, he threw the Lynch on top of it. You know, more than any other director, Lynch's stamp of his particular style is written all over that film. Same thing on the second one. In the miniseries, they were able to, you know, they did have more space and more time. But still, you're limited by other things. You cannot throw everything in there, and you are going to put in your own style or somebody else's style. Uh, but again, we'll talk about that a little later. Another scene that, that again, reminded me of another movie, and that is when the Bene Gesserit ship is landing. The Bene Gesserit ship is a very round, spherical ship 
with, you know, these big landing things. And as it's landing, it's passing through these pines because this is still Caldan. We're still in, in Atreides uh, territory. And it's, it's, as it's going behind the trees, you see the lights coming through. For some reason, it reminded me of the opening of E.T., where, where the ship is arriving. And even when the ship is leaving, but no, specifically the arrival, you see the ship through the, through the trees coming down. And you're trying to figure out what is this thing? What, what kind of shape does it have exactly? It reminded me of that. Something that is always overwhelming in this story, and that is, and again, you have to go and examine the rules, the story itself, and that is this this Bene Jesuit religious sect that is very important here. It is the it's kind of like saying this is the royal religion. You have the royal family, you have the official religion of this royal family. The character of Jessica, who is Paul's mother, who is also not Leto's wife, he's his concubine. And again, this is very crazy kind of stuff and that is in a sort of medieval way the structure is such that he has a person that he loves let's say but then he has the potential to be able to marry somebody for political gain the combining of two houses for political ascension if you will um, which i guess this is something that that was done in the past. You you know, people married other people just because of political reasons to get, you know, for to for, for in order for them not to go to war or in order for them to form an alliance against someone else, you know, that kind of stuff. But then on the side, they would have the actual person that they did want to be with. So it was you know, all that's kind of weird stuff that for us it's ancient and it doesn't work that way anymore. Well, apparently this is kind of like the thing that happens uh, at this time. And What's very compelling and and clear, and in a way you could kind of say it, it was also in the other versions, is the fact that Jessica is so willing to go along with this. She's been brought up in that way, and it's it's religion. It is basically religion. No two ways around it. And the fact that in the story she had a boy instead of a girl was something that was very disturbing to the leaders of the religion because she was ordered to have a girl. I think the assumption is, again, the deeper you go into the books or the other uh, movies or whatever, I think the assumption is actually that she could determine or will herself to have a girl. Or I don't know if it meant you just keep trying until you have a girl and you get rid of all the boys in the meantime. I don't know. I, 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 I haven't seen anything that specific yet, but the assumption seems to be like she could just make it happen. Part of her training, part of her weird ways. But they also, a lot of them uh, who don't like the, that particular religious sect, also refer to them as witches because they have these special powers, these special training. And this is the type of stuff that she has taught Paul to use that normally doesn't get taught to a boy, a man. It's a girl-only religious sect that is kind of working behind the scenes. Again, there are so many layers here. The way in which this whole world is constructed. Another thing that I appreciate more about this version of the movies is that the age is a little more on par with the book. The character of Paul is supposed to be 15 years old, 
And in the previous films, both actors, to me, looked a lot older than 15. Granted, this actor is not 15, but he looks a lot younger than he probably is. There's a scene where the Bene Gesserit mother, the, the, the higher muckety-muck, <laughs> comes to visit, uh, which we see this, this scene happens in, in, in all of the, the films. It's a very important scene where she's warning, uh, she's testing Paul to see if he's worthy of, of continuing, blah, 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 whatever, and he, he's worthy of it and whatever. But there's a conversation that she has with, with, um, with Jessica afterwards, I think, where she says something about, like, if he fails, there will be another and to me, that reminded me of Star Wars so much. That line in Star Wars. So I don't know if I don't know if they kind of took inspiration on some of this from other properties in the past, not just the you know the the direct you know words of Herbert, <laughs> or if they're grabbing stuff just to, to make it a little more relevant or as a wink wink to the audience who are into science fiction and fantasy. Part of the whole thing about testing Paul has to do with the possibility that he is supposed to be some kind of a messiah or a, or a very powerful religious figure that has been prophesized. And that if he is this person, if he turns out to be this person to the Bene Jesuits, he will have the power to control space and time. You could also theorize that if he can control space and time, if a person can control space and time, especially space, you might not really need the spice anymore because now you can bend space with your mind. Again, you're talking heavy, heavy science fiction here. So don't, you know, you can't really, <laughs> you can't really look at things just on the surface. There's so many layers to this. In the movie, they do this very, amazing sequence of the ships taking off from Paul's home world and instead of them taking off from a landing field you know uh, from an airport or whatever you want to call a place where you put your ship no they're taking off from the sea they're coming up from underwater and rising up in the air again beautiful beautiful imagery it's just fantastic to look at it. They, it, it, it. It reminds you of of old 80s sci-fi paintings. I used to see like on uh, on Starlog magazine again, they would they would highlight some famous painter or something. There was, you know, gigantic rocks floating in the air. That kind that kind of imagery. It's just it was just fantastic when you're like, oh yeah, those are those ships. Okay, I get it now. They first you're like, wait, is this like some kind of a building? No, it's 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 as huge as a building, but it's it's a ship. Amazing. Now, the, the way that the, <laughs> this interstellar travel works, apparently, if I remember it right, and again, I'm not, I, I don't know if I'm remembering from this movie or from the other movies, is that what you do is you, you get your ships from your planet, your armada, if you will, and you go in, up into orbit into a bigger ship that's there, and you go inside that ship, and that ship then does something special with the spice, that folds time, and next thing you know, boom, you are now in that location. You've jumped from there. The ship you're traveling in and the ship that your ship is in now shows up somewhere else, and you basically unload those ships off that ship into that new orbit, into that new planet. So these gigantic ships are basically ferrying all these other ships to these locations, one thing that they do mention 
again, hopefully I'm not confusing myself, is the fact that the people that are in charge of this interstellar travel, which is called the Spacing Guild, and we do learn more about them later, is that because of their exposure to spice in an intergalactic travel manner, in other words, the process itself has an effect on their physical appearance. Now, we haven't seen these people yet in this film clearly. We've seen some representatives of them, and they're all wearing these special white robes. They're very religious-looking, but they're also wearing these masks that do not allow you to see their faces. They're kind of clouded behind glass. In the Lynch version, it is insane what these beings look like. In the sci-fi channel version, they're not as disgusting, but they're also insanely looking when you finally do get a look at them. Sooner or later, I'm sure we're going to get a look at them, uh, most likely in the sequel in this movie. But that is, in a way, when you look at the hierarchy of who's running what, the two main forces, the two main, if you want to call the main corporate entity above kings or dukes or whatever the hell, or barons or whatever those political structures exist, they all kind of are functioning with the approval of the Spacing Guild. So the Spacing Guild and the Bene Jesuits are kind of holding hands together and kind of arranging how things should work. And in this particular structure, you have an emperor that's kind of below them. And the emperor is kind of being told, indirectly or directly, how things are supposed to go. And then he follows through, and then he follows through with his people, and his people follow through with other people. So that is kind of like the hierarchy of how things are functioning. In this film, we have not yet met the emperor, as opposed to the other two, where we do see uh, the character of the emperor come in earlier in the film. When we arrive at Arrakis, another one of those moments where, again, it brings you back to, oh, that's right, this is all based on Earth. There is a connection to Earth in all this. Duke Leto's troops come off the, their ships, and they're all playing bagpipes. That is like their welcoming music. It's like, oh, okay, so there's a connection to bagpipes. Like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. That's, that's very direct. I don't remember, again, if the book went in that direction. I'm sure there's plenty of things that uh, this director did because he just wanted to. He doesn't necessarily have to follow every word, you know, word by word. The most common ships that we see here for Atreides' forces uh, for transporting themselves back and forth as opposed to in in the other two. Here, the ship is usually a two-man Pilot, co-pilot ship that can hold maybe another 10 people inside, more or less, depending on how big it is. There's a smaller version that only holds two people, but they look like dragonflies. That's the first thing that came to mind when I saw them. And the, and not just because of the, the shape of the thing, but the fact that it, it actually has four or six distinct wings that kind of, they, they don't rotate like a helicopter, uh, even though it looks like a little bit like a helicopter. They, they flap. They flap up and down and create, I guess, the, the momentum needed for flight. Uh, very imaginative. I, I don't, I'm not sure how they came to that, but it's a very imaginative, cool 
uh, looking little ship for them to, to, you know, to get around. In the first film, I remember it looked like a box. It looked like somebody took a brick and said, here's a spaceship. <laughs> here's a fighter. <laughs> and in the... Uh, in the uh, the Sci-Fi Channel version, they also had something that was kind of boxy and a little better, but this one is a little more slick. Let's put it that way. It, it, it was much slicker. Now, another thing that they do mention here is that the Bene Jesuits, because of their influence and their power, their religious reach, they have been able to already been influencing uh, the uh, the Arrakis Fremen. Their particular religion have a version of the Bene Gesuit, you know, mothers, that sort of thing. So they might not be exactly, exactly the way that they are, but they are a version of it. And it, again, it reminds you of colonial times where you have missionaries out there preaching and kind of sowing the seeds of okay, we're going to kind of get these people used to our religion and maybe eventually we can convert them all. That kind, that kind of stuff is already happening here ahead of time, which is partly how Paul and his mother are able to be accepted in a very indirect way into their, 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 their arms. You know, he doesn't just kind of like perform magic tricks and they all fall for it. There is a little more than that. He does have to perform certain things uh, to, 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 to make himself uh, believable. But there was already a foundation there that allows especially Jessica to become their religious person at a certain point later on. Then we have a scene between the Bene Jesuit mother, I guess, and the Harkonnen, Baron, where it is stated that the Emperor is going to supply the Baron with his own troops to invade Arrakis and to topple Duke Leto. Now, this is something that I always felt it was implied in the Lynch film, but in this particular case, it's right there in your face. The orders are being given. The emperor's involvement in all this is pretty clear. Now, don't get me wrong. The Sci-Fi Channel miniseries is super clear about this. It's, it's super clear that this is the way it's working. But the Lynch film, I found it a little difficult to understand at first the emperor's moves as to how involved he really is with what's going on. The procedure of how the spice gets extracted from the sand in terms of how these things occur mechanically is something that we see in all versions of the story. In this particular film, we are shown these extractors that are kind of hoisted by these balloon kind of devices where they get inflated and they pick up the the device, the machines and they kind of hoist them away uh, it's a slightly different uh, method than, than we've seen uh, in the previous two dr Hugh who ends up being uh, the traitor in all three versions which I guess that is a very strong plot point in this film he is uh, very like like his technique of examining Paul involves touch like he can tell a whole bunch of things just by touching him in certain ways in certain parts 
he can extract like medical information from him that way. Again, they don't really go too much into detail as to how that's happening, but but it is happening. There is a certain low-tech nature to this whole galaxy in a way, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it, because you're dealing with interstellar travel, space travel. You're dealing with all kinds of futuristic devices and things, but it is still a very low-tech looking instruments that are being shown. It's almost kind of like a steampunk kind of look to things. I remember uh, for the Lynch version, there was a lot of that going on. You don't really see like computer screens. Everything is dark and dirty and like microphones are held with two hands. There is not a lot of like miniaturization of circuitry. Everything is big and bulky and clumsy and dirty, which I believe goes back to this pre- historical event in this world, in this galaxy, where at some point in humanity's history, and this is something that's explained a lot clearer in, in one of the versions of the of the Lynch cut, of the many Lynch cuts, and even in the book, in the glossary, which I actually read a little bit of, and I kind of got to that section already, where they talk about, like, in the history of this whole thing, Humanity created robots, and then the robots got really good at what they did, and we were using them as servants. And after a while, we used them as weapons against each other, and we had robots kind of fighting each other to the point where the robots themselves wanted to become independent of humans, and then we had to fight the robots to gain almost like our independence from the robots. And that is what more or less banned this high-tech technology of robotics and brought us back to a more, I don't know what you want to call it, simpler life. But technology still progressed, but not so high-tech as we would see in other films or even in present time. As a result, that's how those two forces emerged out of this war. And that is the Bene Gesuits as more of the religious arm of the government, and the Commerce Guild, which is what kind of kept businesses afloat and functional and the economy moving. Those two things is really what controls everything, what controls governments, what controls this emperor that's in charge of everybody else, how the the spoils of war are divvied up. It all stems from the flow of the spice. As long as the flow of the spice continues, you know, they can look the other way to just about everything that gets done. They're really the ones behind everything. And they're really the ones that are afraid of Paul the most because through their individual powers, they can see the potential of Paul becoming more than just a leader. He could become something much bigger than that. One thing I noticed about Timothy Chalamet, and I don't know if it's because the director already worked with Ryan Gosling, but there are certain scenes where Chalamet looks a little like Gosling in terms of that face acting that Gosling is so famous for. That he doesn't really say much, but you can kind of read it in his 
facial expressions, his deadpan, you know, non-communicative <laughs> facial expressions. I, I saw a little bit, I saw a little hint of uh, Goslet in his performance. In this film, we also visit the planet Salusa Secundus, which is the Imperial Army planet. We learn, I mean, I've learned, that this is not only kind of like a prison planet, but this is where the emperor trains his troops. And the imagery is really very strong and very vicious in terms of these troops are being almost like religiously blessed before going into battle kind of thing, and which is something not unusual. We, we, we've seen in reality, in real life, some of these weird religious rituals when it comes to war and armaments and soldiers. But here, it is very almost like barbaric. Not only do they have this priest-like being chanting to the troops, and the troops are there in, in formation, there are these other, again, priest-like individuals walking around, putting blood on their head, like marking them, marking all the troops, almost like giving them a blessing. And the blood is coming from these containers and these artificial indentations in the ground. And, and then they show you that it looks like they're sacrificing people and bleeding them out in order to generate this blood that's needed for this blessing that's taking place, this preparation for war. Really disturbing imagery of, of what the hell exactly is going on. Granted, it's supposed to signify, I assume to the viewer how treacherous these troops are, how inhuman practically they are. There are certain characters I noticed, and at first I thought I was not seeing things right. Like the guy that greets them in Arrakis. Uh, he's supposed to be, I believe his title is the Master of Armaments or the Master Poisoner or something like that. He's one of these guys that is supposed to, I guess, be one of the other teachers of Paul. He's the, the guy that has that, that blue mark under his lip. There's this weird thing where he kind of rolls his eyes upward at certain points. And I wasn't sure if that was supposed to mean something or if that was an accident or an or just a, a bad take or something. But apparently it's something important and something specific because there was another character that does the same thing. And he's the guy who's, who's the advisor to the Baron, the Harkonnen Baron. There's a scene where his eyes kind of roll up in the, you know, to the back of his head and come back. I don't know if it's like he's thinking or something or it's computing information or something. There's something about, and I mentioned before, the low-tech nature of things. And that is, in this particular film, there's a lot of knife and sword play. The troops don't seem to be armed with any kind of firepower, weapon-wise. Ships seem to have some kind of firepower, you know, projectile firepower, lasers, whatever. But just general troops, it looks as if their preferred method of fighting is swordplay. It's really unusual. In the other films, there are, you know, guns that they're using. These futuristic, obviously different kind of guns. Not necessarily laser guns, but something of, of that nature. When the attack begins on Arrakis, it looks as if some of the guards are taken out by somebody with a gun. This could be, I'm pretty sure it's Dr. Hume, but it just seemed unusual that, wait a minute, now we do have guns? How does that work? Well, where is the, is this part of that whole anti-technology thing? You know, who knows? 
And like I said, as the Harkonnen ships are coming in and they're preventing the Atreides ships from taking off, they're all being bombarded by bombs and gunfire coming from those attacking ships. There is a scene where Duncan, I think Duncan and Paul and Jessica, they're hiding and they're trying to escape the Harkonnen troops or the actualists, the, the, the Emperor's troops. And they have these, uh, like a portable laser that they're using to cut through a door, which I guess that, that must be a big deal. That must be something additional, something unusual, extra that they have to use. Because again, most of this is being done. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it with swords. Every now and then, especially in the desert, I could have swore I heard, like, like, like the music is all by Hans Zimmer and it's incredible music as usual. He does fantastic work. But I could have swore I heard some musical cues that I recognized, possibly from the original film. It's possible. The original film had a combination of Toto composing the, the music, which is very unusual, very unusual. And uh, Brian Eno, I think, did at least one very important, I think like a desert theme or something like that, that I could have swore it kind of finds its way into this film in a very brief period. When Paul is confronting the Fremen, there is a point where he pulls a gun on them. And I don't remember if the gun belonged to him or if the gun he steals from the Fremen. I'm not entirely sure, which is another one of these occasions where it's like, oh, there is a gun here and somebody does use guns somewhere in this. And this particular story ends with him basically joining the Fremen. He has proven himself in battle to them. Uh, they accepted his mother, his visions of this woman. He finally meets her, which we barely get to see her. In this film, other than the visions, who is played by Zendaya. I assume, obviously, she's going to be way more important in the second part of this story. Because uh, it's almost like a tease, the way they use her in this one. And we do get to see a Fremen uh, riding a worm. So, we're getting, we're kind of inching towards that. At the time, like I mentioned earlier... And this happens to me sometimes. When I start to do some research, I fall down the rabbit hole and I'm like trying to find anything conceivable to strengthen uh, my knowledge of the subject that I'm talking about. Other than, of course, reading the book. Like I said before, I'm in the process of reading the book and I am finding things as I read the book. That's like, oh, this is a scene that was in the Lynch film. Oh, this is a scene that was only in the Sci-Fi Channel movie. Oh, this is a scene that... Only uh, this latest film, you know, stuff like that. Or it's like, oh my God, we just passed a scene that was not in the book and it's already not here, which means somebody made it up. That happens too. You end up with stuff like that. But as I mentioned earlier, at that point, I said, all right, let me find out a little more. So I dug up my DVD copies of Frank Herbert's Dune, you know, from the Sci-Fi Channel. It's a director's cut. And because I had not seen this in such a long time, I could not tell you the difference between what aired originally that I watched and this new, newer DVD director's cut, which I had probably, I, there's a good possibility I had never seen this DVD before, but I did. It took me a couple days because it's, it's pretty long. And at first I was very disappointed as I was watching it because couple of items. There's only really one known actor in it, William Hurt. Very famous actor. He plays the, the Duke Leto. 
just about everybody else is not that well known. There is one Italian actor who plays the emperor, but everybody else, I had no clue who these people were. Off the bat, this is the year is probably the early 2000s. The CGI is very primitive, if you will. It's of its time. At its time, it was, I guess, considered acceptable for television. Let's keep that in mind, for television. Whenever you have any kind of spaceship or anything like that, you know you're in a CGI world. It's very obvious. The budget just wasn't there for that. The sets are also not as grand, not as epic. And even compared to... Lynch's Dune, the sets are not as epic. And as I, you know, watch the making of documentaries and all that material, you kind of start to learn, yeah, the budget was was tight, so they had to do things differently. They apparently, for backgrounds, for these expansive backgrounds, they did not shoot in real deserts. They shot it in a stage. And they basically somehow printed these huge vistas on canvas and then just wrapped the canvas around, you know, these huge, I don't know how many feet high and wide to create these mountains and sand dunes and everything that after a while you kind of get used to it but there's this general uh, feel that yeah the money's just not there but one of the main things i noticed that made it very different is that the way that especially the the baron harkonnen acts and delivers his lines, everything kind of felt almost like a play. And by that, I mean, it's the combination of sets and acting. You overact because you're trying to compensate for the sets and for everything else that you don't have. But his acting is way, way over the more over the top than anything else I've seen in any of the other two films. It is way over the top. The CGI, like I mentioned before, it almost looks like, watching it now, it felt like pre-vis, pre-visualization animation of what the effects are going to look like once they actually put them in. But it's like, no, that is what they're going to look like. That's how, you know, that's how funny, you know, the difference is between now and then. But back then, that was the, the best that you could do. However, one of the biggest advantages of the Sci-Fi Channel one is that I believe it is probably more accurate to the book because they have the time. It was three parts. It's almost like two hours each part. So there's lots of space for them to be able to crank more information that you ever had before. Granted, again, this is a director's cut, so I'm sure there's a big chunk of information there that I hadn't even seen before that they can even expand on it more now. But a lot of these things that I was surprised by, you know, watching the film a couple of days ago, I found them like, oh, wow, they do go into this in this version. They do talk about this or that. That was all. I, I ran into that a lot because I also had for completely forgotten about this, the detail of what they go into in this film and this in this mini series. Once again, like I said before, you don't get the grand, massive scale of the films in this particular version. But overall, it's kind of like watching the low-end version of it, if you will. I almost felt like I was reading the cliff notes. This is like if you had a movie, and even though this is longer than anything else, it's like the cliff note version because it's the quality is not there but the information is there. So it kind of it, it kind of makes up for itself in, in a weird manner. Then I said, all right, well, here's what we need to do. 
I need to rewatch the original film, but I remember that there was a special version, and not to be confused with what I just talked about, that aired in the Sci-Fi Channel of the Lynch film, and it included extra scenes. And in those extra scenes, you got to know a little more. It filled in the gaps, all these extra things that were missing that showed up later in in the Sci-Fi Channel version were kind of cobbled together for for the Sci-Fi Channel Dune Lynch Dune version. This. Lynch Dune version ended up being an Alan Smithy film because Lynch wanted nothing to do with it. And in the course of I don't know how many years, they took his original film and came up with so many different versions of it to try to extend it and add things that you just kind of lost track of how many of the different versions are out there in different countries and different formats. The one that's out there now, it is a slightly longer version, but it is not everything that was shot and is out there in some shape or form. Unfortunately, like I said, this sci-fi channel version is not accessible. I don't think it was ever sold in the States, at least. It, was, it might have been sold in other countries, but in the States it was never sold. And it is the Alan Smithy version, the version that he wanted nothing to do with and thereby had his name removed as director. But on the internet, I did find a website where somebody took as many possible versions of the film and kind of spliced them all together to form uh, the longest possible cut. It is not a super clean. It is dirty and, and difficult sometimes because the sources are all over the place. But it tries to extend everything as much as humanly possible, as much as footage exists or aired or exists as a deleted scene in some shape or form, cobble it all together. If you go to filmbook.com, there's an article called Watch Dune 1984, three-hour version, theater and extended cut plus deleted scenes. This was posted back in August 9th of 2015. I'll I'll, I'll try to post a, a link to this. But what they did here is come up with a streamable version of Lynch's Dune, but it has so many more things that I had never seen and scenes that, you know, I'm watching this 2021 version saying, oh, wow, it's a great thing that they included this. Well, some of them were there in the past. Lynch had to cut his film quite a bit. He shot a lot and had to get rid of quite a lot to make it what it ended up being. But in the process, yeah, this is this book is a monster. This book is, it's really not made, I think, to be told in a very quick two-hour story. This this requires some some heavy lifting and and time to be able to project this kind of story. This is exactly what they did with Lord of the Rings. You need time to be able to give away all that exposition and all that you know in a, in a timely manner, so that you don't feel like you're rushing through it. This version has the beginning narrative telling you about the, the this this robotic war that took place before all these events and that how this all led to what they have now how this anti-technology battle ended with the kind of world that we are watching right now take place in this story it tells you how the spacing guild and the Bene Jesuits were born out of this time period it tells you about how the navigator is somebody humanoid, I assume, at some point, but becomes deformed and altered because of the 
the nature of the spice, the, the so much, uh, the high consumption and the so high exposure to spice that it starts to really mess with your body physically and turn you into something completely different. Again, we've seen that with Lynch. We've seen that in Sci-Fi Channel. We haven't seen it yet in this film to see how they're going to interpret that. There are more thinking scenes, which is, whew, those are tough. Trying to portray it a narrative of character thinking, the exposition of somebody thinking, which Lynch did quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of this here because there's just more of it. The other thing about Lynch is that, again, it's his style. He, he His particular style is also very kind of like 50s, and you see it more, and it's more appropriate on films like Blue Velvet and some of his other more weirder films. But to apply it to this, it seems a little odd. It, there's a there's a weird aesthetic, a weird vibe going through this movie that I just think it, it, it didn't fit well, you know, with this particular story. One of the items that I'm not sure if they tap into in the novel, maybe I'll, when I get to it, maybe it will happen or not, is this whole thing about the Harkonnen prisoners end up having surgically altered heart plugs and it's basically a plug that they put near the heart so that if they want to execute or kill that individual they pull a plug and it's basically their heart just stops functioning because they pull the plug on the heart something that we get a uh, two instances of in in the lynch version including one of these deleted scenes Another thing that we see with the Lynch version that, again, it's kind of, it might be to remind us of the fact that this is all us, this is Earth, you know, but in other planets, that it is tied to our world, is that the Atreides, uh, they seem to have these pugs as pets. And even the Emperor, they're walking around with these pugs, these little dogs. And it's like, that's kind of weird that they, you know, they're walking around with pets and the pets are so exactly like they are today. And even in this extended cut... They do talk about, and again, I don't remember if it ever made it to the theatrical cut or it was part of the additional material, is that the fact that it is very important for them to hide the fact that the emperor is behind all this because they don't want the other houses having to get involved with this and jump in on the wrong side or get upset at the emperor. It's very important to keep it quiet that the emperor is helping the Harkonnens. Once again, part of the aesthetics for Lynch... And we talked about before, like the ships are very boxy, very square, very simple. But inside, they're also very like Victorian, I would say. I remember there's a scene where they're flying, you know, when they're going to rescue the, uh, I think it's when they're going to rescue the, the, the spice harvesters, or maybe when Paul and Jessica are, are trying to escape the Harkonnens, where you see the background of the ship and it's all padded like a couch. And the microphone is, you hold it up with one hand and all these things look... They look like something out of a Jules Verne movie, you know what I mean? It's it's this weird 1800s aesthetic of what the future would look like. Um, really unusual, you know, that they, they go in that direction with it. So, overall, <laughs> like I said before, I'm now in the process of reading the book. The book is a difficult book to read, don't get me wrong. But I'm, I'm going through it, and it is very helpful to me that... I've just watched all these versions of the movie because it helps me to visualize what the book is trying to tell me. The book's narrative is completely different also. This whole story is being told by the emperor's daughter. 
She's narrating the book, kinda. She also narrates the beginning, I believe, of the Lynch film. You see her, she's played by Virginia Matson, a pretty well-known actress at the time. But in the uh, in this Vellany version, no, there, uh, we haven't met her. We haven't met the Emperor. We haven't met uh, the Harkonnen, the other, the other nephew Frey that I, uh, in, in the Lynch version was played by Sting. So there is a couple of important characters that we have yet to meet, and who knows? I mean, they're gonna, I imagine, cast some pretty heavy hitters. I think uh, for some of those characters. Like I said before, I am looking forward to it. I, I, I like where we're heading here. This is definitely, I think, the best, cleaner, dare I say, more believable, more down-to-earth version of what's going on. The, even the ages are more appropriate. I believe uh, Paul is supposed to be like 15 years old, 15, 16 years old. And in the movies, yeah, the movie, the Lynch movie, he looked a lot older. I mean, the actor Kyle MacLachlan was a lot older, I think. And even in the in the Sci-Fi Channel version, uh, he was much older too. So we will see what happens next. There is a, a certain change. In, in other words, in the Lynch version, you go from this, dare you say, futuristic tech, which is very low tech also, but epic battles, and then... He goes to the desert where he has to now become one of the Fremen. So it kind of everything gets a lot quieter, a lot closer, a lot out in the wilderness kind of thing. A lot more (laughs) talky-talky, if you will. A lot more psychedelic, a lot more in his mind, changing, adapting, expanding, being introduced to Spice more and and his reaction to it and his mother. You know, there's a lot of that weird stuff going on, not only in the Lynch version, but in the Sci-Fi Channel version, which I have a feeling that's where we're heading now in the part two of this. I hope that he's able to, the director, balance it out with not too trippy, not not as Lynchian, if you will, as, as what we've seen before. And I understand that part of it is Lynch. Yes, part of there is definitely a Lynch aspect to the Lynch film. But in the Sci-Fi Channel version, the, the Frank Herbert Dune miniseries, yes, they do go trippy, crazy trippy for a while while they're out in the desert before they kind of come back to reclaim power and all that stuff. So I, I hope they, they're able to cinematically, artistically keep up with not just setting the rest of this in a cave somewhere, you know, that kind of thing. I, I look forward to it. I hope it comes, I think they already kind of even announced what date they're looking for, 2023, I think, which, okay, we'll see if, if they can pull it off. I'll be there for it. I'm, I'm happy with it. I, I'm looking for more information on this. I hope that when this comes out on DVD, it will be obviously be on Blu-ray and and maybe a director's cut, maybe a longer version of it. Hopefully he shot more stuff, which is, I like that stuff. It's really good, especially in a movie like this when they give you more. I saw it in the theater and then I watched it at home because HBO Max was also showing it. And this is one of those films that I had the option of going one way or the other, but I was like, no, no, no. This is one that I have to see in the movie theater. I have to see it as big as possible because this is one of those important films that deserves you know, the reverence of, of a movie theater. But yeah, let's see where we go with this. And it, it is, like I said, it's heavy science fiction. This is not Star Wars. This is not Star Trek. This is heavy, heavy, heavy science fiction. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. 
we went as deep as possible into Dune, even deeper than we even wanted to go. Because, you know, at first I was thinking, let's just deal with this movie. And then it's kind of like, well, I can't deal with this movie unless I talk about the previous attempts. And then the elephant in the room was the book, the book that I had sat on for years. As I mentioned earlier, over 30 years, I sat on this book saying to myself, I have to one day read this book. I have to one day read this book. Well, I'm now about halfway through it. (laughs) And I'll tell you something. It is so much easier trying to read this book now because I did attempt a little bit, just a tiny little bit when I first got it. But now having all those previous films, interpretations, it really, really helps you understand what's going on in the book, at least for me, that the, the manner in which I read and I understand and I consume and I digest the written word. It really helps me to picture what they're talking about with these images kind of in the back of my mind. There were a couple of things I remember that we talked about during this show that would still kind of bug me and and I would ask the question and I wasn't sure of the answers. But doing a little digging, as usual, uh, gives you those answers. And one of the main things I remember that even in this story, they're kind of mysterious about or outright don't go into it like the book. The book doesn't just give you all the answers. They're dispersed in little pockets here or there, or you have to go to the glossary in the back and try to figure out what they're talking about, you know, in the back. Or obviously you have to then jump to multiple books where they really go deep into some of these other things. But again, you can't expect that when you're in the first story, you can't expect to go other places. And this has always been one of my biggest criticisms of films and i remember with rise of skywalker and even the last jedi my my whole thing was that i shouldn't have to go outside of this movie in order to explain what's happening in this movie i shouldn't have to go to other printed materials or other things to kind of get my information but unfortunately this is the way that this particular movie works in terms of the director decided just like previous directors more or less, that he wasn't going to spoon feed you all this information. You're going to walk into this in the best case scenario, maybe with the knowledge of the book in your pocket, uh, which would give you a lot of ammunition to kind of go through this whole thing. But these movies are not made for fanboys. I mean, the fanboy based is always something they want, no doubt about it, but it's made for a, a mass wide audience. And The question will always there be of, did the director succeed in giving you enough information to have a coherent storyline? And that's something that people will have to decide on their own. But as I'm going through the movie and not remembering previous versions exactly as they happened, a lot of the details, we kind of go through these similar traps of, wait a minute, what is this about? I don't understand what this means. What do they mean by that? How does this work? You know, that whole shield technology, the whole minimalistic weaponry technology. And it's funny because, again, when you go to YouTube and you research a little bit, you find out that it's all kind of related. This whole historical thing that we talked about before, where they had a, an AI war, if you will, 
where we created robots, robots helped us, we used robots as slave labor, we used robots for war, then the robots rose up against us and we had to fight the robots, and then we had this period of time now where robots are banned, high tech is banned, everything has to be very minimalistic. And in this process, during this period of time, which is about 5,000 years before this movie, the development of the Holtzman shields came about, uh, which is the shields that they used to fight, those shields, those protective shields. And one of the things about these shields is that it stops fast-moving objects from hitting it, but it does not stop slow-moving objects. So in a way, any kind of projectile weapon, like gun, a gun kind of weapon where you have a metal particle flying out of the gun and hitting you from far away. It's supposed to stop that kind of weapon from injuring you. However, a slow moving blade can penetrate. And one of the reasons they explain is that the shield has to be somewhat porous. You cannot just completely encase somebody in a shield because that person would then suffocate because there's no air coming in and out. So what they again, theorize, is that this is why many years later they develop, or through the years, they started to develop a more basic fighting style, and that is the, the knife and blade kind of uh, sword kind of fighting, because they avoid these type of weapons that are useless against a shield. Now, in space, they also use shields, but in space, the shields can be a lot stronger because... Inside your ship, you have your own oxygen generating devices because you're in space, obviously. So you're not as concerned about anything really getting through because the shields are a lot tougher. But here's where it gets nutty. And here's where the whole technology thing gets even nuttier. Apparently, the interaction of a shield with a laser, in other words, a device like a laser gun, and they kind of refer to laser guns every now and then in the book. And even in the movie, we actually have a couple of uh, of the bad guys using what appears to be a laser to penetrate a door. One of the big things about using those lasers is that when it interacts with the shields, it can create an atomic explosion. And that's why everybody is kind of like in agreement that they're not going to engage in laser fighting in any shape or form until they do because of the potential danger of it triggering an atomic explosion and obviously wiping out yourself and your opponent and yourself in that moment. Um, so that's kind of like a, I would say like a last minute resort type of almost suicidal kind of weapon when you try to engage that, you know, in that manner. The other thing that I mentioned before was that I wasn't sure about the rolling of the eyes, uh, that I thought it might have been an error in the film, or maybe it was on purpose. No, it was definitely on purpose, and then I found out, and then it made sense. Again, when you read the book, not necessarily the, the eye rolling, but the fact that the Mentats, these trained individuals, 
that are supposed to be the equivalent of computers. They're very smart and they're able to calculate things when it comes to numbers and statistics and stuff like that almost instantaneously. And that's why they each have the Duke has his own Mentat and the Harkonnen has his own Mentat. And even though they're working for opposite ends of the spectrum, that is what's happening. When their eyes roll back, it's because they're calculating some very fast a mathematical number, for example, and that's what gives them that reaction, which is like, okay, now it makes... But again, it's like, how would I know that? How would anybody know that? They basically became what was banned after robots were removed, you know, after artificial intelligence. They were trained without technology to be able to access that data through human means as opposed to artificial means. The other thing I remember that I kept wondering about was... The effect, the shield effect for the original film, those boxy, very rectangular things, and it was definitely not CGI, and through, through again, through doing a little bit of digging, it, it was a form of animation. It was a rotoscoping kind of animation where you follow live action and you draw over it. In the past, rotoscoping usually had to do with drawing over a moving image or creating an animated version of a live action by, by kind of tracing it. Here, what they basically did was drew over the film. These boxy type of things that looked like rudimentary CGI, which was not CGI. And as I mentioned before, this is a trick that was used in the past because it's, it's funny how in the past they kind of had an idea of what CGI was going to look like. Fake-looking CGI, obviously, not, not realistic, because realistic, you're not supposed to be able to tell the difference, obviously. But the primary CGI was going to look like, but when you couldn't afford to do it because it would have taken too much time, too much money, whatever, then they did it in an animation style. This way, you got a feel for it. Again, think back to Tron. Think back to some of these earlier films where you're like, wow, is that CGI? And you're like, no, it's animation. So... We had a number of incidents like this where the movie doesn't give you everything and then you have to go out digging for it. And yes, like I said, in the past, that's something that frustrates me. Here, because there's so much material and because this is the third attempt at this, you know, it, it didn't bother me as much. And because it kind of forced me to start reading the book. And yeah, the book is a rich, rich book. There's still stuff in the book that kind of goes over my head. There's stuff that it's like, forget it. I, I can't even touch this. Uh, let's just move on to the next paragraph, you know, because it is so deep where you're like, okay, this must be dealt with in another book or this, this is something that I can't just stop everything and do a three hour research session on. No, but I am glad that I saw this movie. I can't wait. I really can't wait for them to continue it. I think so far, this is the best version of telling of Dune. It's not a perfect, you know, vision of it. This is not an action-y, popcorn-y, Star Wars-y kind of movie. Like I said before, it is a, a deep, deep, heavy, heavy sci-fi. It's the type of stuff that really takes a lot of uh, heavy lifting. But they do kind of pepper it with enough set pieces, action-y, entertaining kind of set pieces to keep you kind of entert you know, entertained and, and informed. Uh, to a certain extent, not as much as I wish they would inform you, to keep you going. Again, let's see what happens with part two when that comes out in two years. Man, that's a long time. And because this is the part of the film, I think, that 
might drag a little bit. You know, if you thought the first one was a little slow, I'm afraid the second one might be even slower. And it, it who knows, it might suffer for it. Maybe they'll adjust the story enough to keep the pace a little faster, a little more, you know, moving forward at a certain speed. We will see. And in the meantime, I will have finished the book, maybe moved on to other books. There are other books, this whole thing called the Butlerian Jihad, which is the one that I think has to do with the robotics wars. What started this whole thing going? That's something that that I wonder if I, I might actually own that. I'm not sure because I did buy a whole bunch of Doom books a long time ago and I never touched them, like I said. So it's possible I own it and, and it's possible maybe I could even read that one before a sequel comes out. But I'll definitely be done with this book way before that happens. So. Again, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. I hope I gave you enough material on this subject. And, you know, like I said, Dune is one of these subjects that I I really tried to avoid for a long time because I knew it was going to be a difficult subject. And I'm not exactly, you know, that big of a fan or, or knowledgeable on it. But it depends, again, on how you approach it. I don't know who are the audience for this film. Who is actually seeing it? Fanboys are seeing it. I'm pretty sure they're seeing it. How accessible is it to a general audience? We will see. The movie is making some money, some decent money at least, to to, to generate a sequel. So that's kind of good. But it is not exactly what you would call a blockbuster. It's it's definitely not. You know, I think it was number one maybe uh, two weeks, two, three weeks or something like that. So that seems to be your average good movie, okay movie, when it stays on number one for like two weeks. <laughs> I know this is so weird. When we used to like, remember, movies would be number one for like months. <laughs> That's how crazy things used to be back back in the, uh, in the old 80s. Anyway, thanks uh, for listening and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Now, the most widely read, talked about, and cherished masterpiece of a generation comes to the screen. Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune. I see two great houses, Feudy. A world where the unexpected... Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown... ...and the unbelievable meet. Where kingdoms are built on Earth that moves. And skies are filled with fire, where warriors fight with a thought and kill with a word. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And greatest terrors. A world where the mighty, the mad, all I can see is an Atreides that I want to kill. And the magical... The sleeper has awakened! ...will have their final battle. A world called Doom. Long live the fighters! We will kill until no Harkonnen breathes Arakeen air. Doom, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. 
I don't know what we're yelling about! Geek Fest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone. Copyright 2021. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>